Hello, this is Bob Groves, and welcome again to our Provost podcast series that we call Faculty in Research. And this week, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome uh, Dr. William Gormley, Bill Gormley, a university professor of public policy and also co-director of the Center of Research on Children in the U.S. He teaches courses in the McCourt School and in the Government Department of Georgetown College. He's written extensively on bureaucracies and efforts to, for, to, to reform them by improving accountability mechanisms, especially those focusing on performance measurement. His book, Taming the Bureaucracy, won the Lewis Brown, Brownlow Award for the best book on public administration from the National Academy of Public Administration. He's truly helped shape the public debate over early childhood education policy by studying the short-term short and long-term effects in the state of Oklahoma of universal pre-K. He is a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration, one of the co-founders of Hoya Kids on our own campus, a daycare center at, at Georgetown University. Bill, I'm, I'm delighted to have you with us today, and I'm so happy we were able to twist your arm to be part of this little podcast. You didn't have to twist it that, that much. <laughs> so maybe we ought to begin with a question that uh, academics are often asked, sometimes by students of, so how did you get into this field? How did, how did you end up becoming uh, an academic devoted to interest in political science? What came first? How did you choose what to do? Well, an interest in politics came first. Uh, when I was 10 years old, for whatever strange combination of reasons, I would write letters to US senators and members of Congress that would begin with the stock phrase, although I am only 10 years old, I'm very interested in politics. And um, it's not entirely clear what spawned that, but I can say that my, my father uh, helped to nurture it. So whenever I would say, hey, there's someone exciting coming to town, we grew up in Pittsburgh. And I'd say, if there's someone exciting coming to town, can we go hear him or her? But in those days, it was usually men. And my dad would take me faithfully, even though he must have shuddered and gasped at some of my dreadful choices because they, they ran the gamut from uh, Richard Nixon to Eugene McCarthy. And my dad was what we would call a yellow dog Democrat, which is to say he would vote for a yellow dog if he was a Democrat. So taking me to see Richard Nixon <laughs> took a extraordinary tolerance and forbearance on his part. So was your, was your family politically active? They, were, they knew that politics was important. I'll tell you a little story. Back in the Depression, my father grew up on a farm in Versailles, Kentucky, a very small town, about 4,000 or 4,500 people. And um, they were about to lose their farm. They were about to lose their home because of the depression. And the, the local uh, county commissioner had the sad task of putting their home on the auction block. And he, he came to their home and uh, all the kids were there. My grandma was there. My grandpa couldn't face the 
the ignominy of the moment. And so he was not there. But uh, the county commissioner, a gentleman by the name of Happy Chandler, who went on to become prominent in politics and prominent in baseball, uh, told the assembled group, he said, uh, uh, all of you here today are decent and honorable people. And all of you here today know Mrs. Gormley and her family. And I'm confident that when the bids are placed, that there will be one and only one bid for this house and that it will be $1 and it will come from Mrs. Gormley. <laughs> and that's what happened. And you know, that's just a, a wonderful illustration to me of the power of politics and the power of a, an empathetic politician, which uh, Happy Chandler was. Yeah, yeah, fascinating, fascinating. So you, you, where, you grew up in Pittsburgh. That's right. And high school in Pittsburgh. And, and tell, tell us uh, just a bit of your intellectual awakenings. Was that an undergraduate experience or, or a graduate school experience? That's right. Um, I was one of, of five kids. I was the oldest of five. And um, my mom and dad announced to us uh, pretty early on that uh, they were going to send all of us to school, but that they could only afford to send us to the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, that's exactly what they did, <laughs> mm -hmm. all five of us. And it turned out to be great. I was disappointed because I got into some other schools, including Georgetown, actually. <laughs> but they couldn't send me there. Uh, they, they did, however, make good on that promise. They sent uh, each and every one of us to the University of Pittsburgh, and each and every one of us graduated from Pitt. And it turned out to be a great place to be. Uh, I had some wonderful experiences there. One of the things that I did there was uh, to become the editor of the Pitt News, which was the daily student newspaper. Or Actually, I think it was three, three days a week, now that I think about it. And uh, that got me interested in, in journalism. And so when I went off to graduate school at the University of North Carolina, the furthest thing from my mind was actually the notion that I might become a college professor. Oh, so that's interesting. What was in your mind at that time, you think? I thought I was going to be a journalist, but a proper journalist who would actually have a deep, rich understanding of public policy. And so with that in mind, uh, I, I went to UNC, which had a, a wonderful political science program, but I also uh, worked part-time as a reporter for the Raleigh News and Observer, or the Nuisance and Disturber, as it was known <laughs> in those days, when newspapers tended to be uh, feisty. And uh, so that was my intent until uh, one day I was asked to cover, my city editor asked me to cover uh, a drowning in the Noose River uh, just outside of, Ra of Raleigh. And there were three young couples uh, who had picnicked there earlier in the day. And after having uh, several beers, the guys went off rafting and uh, the women remained behind and none of the guys ever returned. And I was asked to interview one of the widows. And uh, with a heavy heart, I did exactly that, but 
I, I felt like a worm, to be quite honest. I just felt this was not the person who I, I aspired to be. I didn't want to be in this kind of situation ever again. And that convinced me that maybe I had to rethink the idea of becoming a journalist. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And were you at that time in a PhD program? Yes, I was. Okay. So you wanted a research life, I assume, in some sense. What, what were you? What was your your thoughts? Uh, why a PhD? Well, I thought a PhD would give me a rich, in-depth understanding of public policy. And when you get right down to it, a lot of what uh, journalists cover is public policy. Uh, they may not be able to cover it in depth, but they're asked to cover it on a daily basis. And I thought that I could learn uh, enough about politics and public policy in a PhD program that it would repay me tenfold uh, later on as a journalist. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So what, tell us about your dissertation. What was the topic? How did you choose it? <laughs> well, my dissertation topic was the topic that only a mother could love. Uh, <laughs> it was the effects of newspaper television cross-ownership on news homogeneity. Oh, perfect. The title runs off your, your lips, right? Right. Uh, uh. There was a connection to journalism, obviously. In fact, there's sure. a very deep connection to journalism. But there was also, this was an opportunity for me to better understand the bureaucracy, specifically the Federal Communications Commission, which was in charge of those rules. And it was also a chance for me to do an in-depth statistical analysis, which luckily I was able to do thanks to a, a nice uh, grant from the, the Markle Foundation that paid me to, to basically visit 10 cities that had cross-ownership and to do a systematic content analysis of about 10,000 news stories. And based on that, I was able to show that, that uh, cross-ownership actually had uh, homogenizing effects on the news. It undermined diversity in uh, the flow of news in these communities and that that had important policy implications. Mm -hmm. So at the point of, of dissertation, were you already thinking, I'm, I'm going to enter the academy as an instructor? Or when, when did you make that switch? That took a while, Bob, it, because at that point in time, I was still uh, actively entertaining other options, like working on Capitol Hill, for example, or working for the Federal Communications Commission. Um, but I spent the summer of my final year at the Aspen Institute in Aspen. And um, I was actually surrounded there by some of the leading figures in administrative law uh, who were closely connected to their program on communications and society. So um, I had some amazing role models there who convinced me that uh, without proselytizing, but just by their example, convinced me that maybe there could be a, a fruitful, exciting intellectual life for me in academia. Yeah. It was really a, a, a cross-disciplinary move on your part to bring these two fields together, it seems to me. It's interesting. That's true, and I'd like to take credit for that, but I think I should give uh, the, the full credit for that to my uh, dissertation mentor, a, a gentleman by the name of, of Duncan McRae. I don't know if you ever met him. I know Duncan McRae. I knew Duncan McRae. Good, good. 
Well, as, as you know, uh, Duncan was, was uh, technically a professor of political science and a professor of sociology, but uh, he had been trained, he got his PhD at Harvard in social psychology. Uh, his undergraduate degree was in physics, and he was enamored of economics. So, <laughs> you know, he was the, uh, the very epitome of a, a multidisciplinary Renaissance perspective, and I, I learned that and appreciated the value of that from him. Yeah, yeah. So I think people are often interested in, so, so all of us had mentors of some type or another, and I think all of us use that experience to shape what kind of mentor we aspired to be as we went on in life. What, what did you learn from Duncan and either good or bad that shaped how, how you uh, want to mentor young minds? Well, um, he was very, very fastidious. He was also very, very scrupulous. He would shower we, me with comments. Whenever he would read a dissertation chapter and I would go to fetch it uh, in Hamilton Hall, I felt like it was uh, Christmas Day uh, because it was a gift, really. And the essence of his gift was that he was simultaneously capable of seeing the forest and the trees. He, he believed in big themes but he also believed in taking a very hard look at the details. And in my own research, I've tried to do both to the best that I can. Yeah, interesting. So tell me about, you've been working in the Oklahoma City or Oklahoma school uh, issues for some time. How did that project arise? And it's one of the longest running longitudinal studies, I think, of, of this. And uh, it's really an amazing legacy, I think. T tell us how that happened. Well, um, I have to back up a little bit, Bob, to uh, a few years before that. Um, I got very interested in uh, child care policy and child care regulation, thanks in part to the fact that I was becoming uh, an uncle again and again about every five or six months. As I mentioned, I, I come from a big family and uh, without, uh, without uh, thinking much about it, I discovered that I, I was an uncle to uh, about seven or eight nieces and nephews. And I started to think my brothers and sisters were struggling with some of the, the, the work family issues that many of us struggle with today if we're fortunate enough to be parents. And I got to thinking, gee, if they have problems working out these childcare issues and they come from middle-class families, how much more difficult would it be for disadvantaged families to strike those balances? And so I got very interested in childcare and I started looking at uh, the regulation of family daycare homes which are really an important part of the total childcare mix for the simple reason that they are much more likely than established daycare centers to care for infants and toddlers. And so uh, for that reason, I started looking at regulations of family daycare homes and uh, I focused on local governments, which had not received much attention in the literature. And I discovered that 
uh, although the ostensible purpose of local regulations was to protect children, that the actual purpose of local childcare regulations was to protect grouchy neighbors from children. You have all of these local ordinances, zoning ordinances and occupancy permits and uh, building permits and electrical inspections and plumbing inspections. And, and those requirements are there really to make it difficult for these tiny enterprises to actually flourish in a neighborhood setting. So that is not what I expected to find. I, I began with a strong presumption in favor of strong regulation. But when I did my research, I realized that I was dead wrong about that, at least with respect to local regulation. That got me interested in early childhood issues and ultimately in early childhood education. So is that emblematic of uh, how your mind works in, in choosing the next problem you get interested in? Is it some sort of life event or do you see, looking back on your career, that there is there are a set of themes that you keep going back to? Uh, there are different manifestations of questions, but uh, there's a, a consistent theme there. How, how do you look on back on your problem choice? I would say that that example is not emblematic in that it, it did really originate in a specific role that I found myself playing, which was that of an uncle, and the specific roles that my brothers and sisters were playing, namely that of parents. So I'd say that's pretty unusual, at least for me. It may, may be more common for other folks. The, the broader themes that I tend to care about have a lot to do with the role of bureaucracy in a democracy. And specifically, uh, I think that bureaucrats make amazing contributions uh, to the functioning of government, uh, many of them unheralded contributions. Uh, it's only at the present moment in, in the midst of the coronavirus that we can say that in some ways the most trusted person in America is actually a, a bureaucrat. Dr. Anthony Fauci. We don't, <laughs> we don't usually give bureaucrats their, their just, just desserts, but I think we're, we, we have come, in, at least in, in, in this present time, in this moment, to appreciate the value of bureaucrats who really know their stuff, which Dr. Fauci certainly does. So uh, the great thing about uh, strong bureaucracies is that they have this extraordinary expertise at their disposal, whether it's you know, NIH or the Census Bureau or the FCC. But the, the Achilles heel of bureaucracies, from my vantage point at least, is their, their lack of accountability. And so a lot of my uh, research and scholarship over many years has been aimed at trying to figure out ways in which we can harness these wonderful positive qualities of bureaucracy and technical expertise that bureaucrats provide by making bureaucracies more accountable. I see, I see. And does that link, then that, that combination sort of link into the Oklahoma <laughs> work? It, it links more explicitly into some books that I've written. So for example, I, I wrote a book on the politics of public utility regulation. And the basic em empirical question 
that I tackled in that book was uh, how do we make sure that state public utility commissions that make a lot of important decisions on rate structures and rate design with important environmental protection and consumer protection consequences for residents, how do we make sure that those bureaucracies are responsive to the demands and the interests and the views and the values of ordinary citizens? And so in that book, I compared and contrasted citizens groups, uh, which intervened frequently in state public utility commission proceedings, with uh, state attorneys general, which act as proxy advocates. Essentially, they try to uh, distill the presumed values of their constituents and represent those presumed values. So it's a different kind of interest representation, uh, but uh, both potentially very important. And I wanted to see whether those forms of representation were successful in making these usually overlooked uh, bureaucracies more accountable to the people. Mm -hmm. So when you look back at work like that, do you, do you are, are you attempting to build theory? Are you uh, attempting to uh, have empirical evidence grounding conclusions in a particular domain? What, what do you, what do you see yourself doing? The, the social sciences are always fighting about qualitative and quantitative methods and theory building versus applications on that kind of two-dimensional thing. Where, where do you place your work? Well, I forget uh, which actor it was who, uh, who said, I, I do one movie for them and one for me. <laughs> Reynolds, actually. <laughs> uh -huh. Although, um, I can't honestly recall a single Burt Reynolds movie that was well received by the critics. But <laughs> I think what he meant was I do one for the mass audience and I do one for me. Anyway, um, I, I try to do, I'm drawn to theory and I do some mid-level theorizing in some of my books. So I enjoy doing that. And I think that that, that for me has a lot of intellectual value. So in, in another book uh, called Taming the Bureaucracy, I tried to develop a theory, not, not a, a Weberian theory of bureaucracy per se, but a theory of, of how people try to control the bureaucracy. And so th the question there was, uh, how do politicians try to control the bureaucracy? Uh, how do judges try to control the bureaucracy? Uh, how do other bureaucracies try to control the bureaucracy? How does a federal bureaucracy try to control the state bureaucracy? And so I did develop a theoretical framework for thinking about that in which I basically argued that, that there's a spectrum ranging from catalytic controls at one end of the spectrum to coercive controls at the other end of the spectrum and in between would be the controls that I tend to prefer, uh, which I would call hortatory controls, which rely more on persuasion. Sometimes they rely on monetary incentives uh, as well. But in my view, the, the big advantage of those hortatory controls, most of the time over some of these other types of control, is that uh, they are more likely to induce or encourage functional bureaucratic responses as opposed to dysfunctional bureaucratic responses. Got it, got it, got it. Very interesting. So tell us about the Oklahoma thing. <laughs> 
Okay, that, so that's a, uh, a horse of a different color and that's much more empirical and it's, it's much more a matter of detective work. So the other thing that I enjoy most about being a research professor uh, here at Georgetown is that you get to do a lot of detective work. And if I find an interesting puzzle, I'm like a dog with a bone. I really want to get to the bottom of it. I'll go wherever it leads me. At least I like to think that. Uh, and in this case, uh, there were two puzzles. Uh, the state of Oklahoma, which is one of the most conservative states in America, had adopted something called a universal pre-K program, which essentially um, provided free, high-quality preschool funded by the state of Oklahoma to every four-year-old in the state. It's pretty extraordinary because it's really a social entitlement program uh, coming out of one of the reddest states in America. So that was one puzzle, how did this happen? But the bigger puzzle, and ultimately to me, the more interesting puzzle was, does it work? Does it, does it really have a difference uh, on the cognitive skills of young kids? And we've been wrestling with that question ever since ever since this research began, which was back in 2001. Oh, it's an amazing study and, uh, and, it, and ongoing, right? It, it is ongoing. So we started out by uh, answering the, the simplest question, which is, uh, does a high quality universal pre-K program in Tulsa, Oklahoma, produce tangible positive benefits for the kids? And the answer is yes. Uh, the related question was, does it produce tangible positive benefits for all the kids, uh, whether they're disadvantaged or middle class? And the answer to that question is also yes, although the disadvantaged kids seem to benefit more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we, we answered that question. We took two or three bites at that apple and reached the same conclusion with more and better evidence and more sophisticated tests. So then we decided we were going to tackle an even more difficult question, which is what are the long-term effects? And there's, uh, there, that's literally an unanswered question in the literature. On one side of the fence, you have strong supporters of early childhood education who say if a program produces really big benefits in the short run, like the uh, Tulsa pre-K program or the Boston pre-K program, then it's likely to produce at least some positive effects in the longer run. On the other side of the fence, you have uh, proponents of the so-called fade-out hypothesis, which has often been linked to the, the Head Start program, and which essentially says that uh, any program intervention, whether it's aimed at uh, young kids or other uh, clients or constituencies is going to experience substantial fade out or diminution of effects over time. You should be prepared for that. It's just a fact of life. And um, so we were not sure going into this project, which of these two perspectives would turn out to be correct. Mm -hmm. And some of your subjects are adults now, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, it's kind of exciting uh, because um, most of the kids we've been following uh, are kids who entered kindergarten in Tulsa 
in the fall of 2006. Uh -huh. And most of those kids were on track to graduate from high school in the spring of 2019. So some of those kids are now completing their first year of college as freshmen. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, good luck. I hope this goes on for a long time. Let me switch gears. Um, uh, it, it's common when I talk to young faculty um, that they give me the opinion that their PhD program really didn't prepare them well to be a faculty member. They, they had the luxury of working on their research uh, a, a good portion of their time as they finished their dissertation. And they, they hit their first year as a faculty member. They have all this course preparation. They have students to talk to. And they face a juggling of multiple duties uh, that uh, they find uh, awesome in the sense that they, they sometimes can't figure out how to do well at everything. And uh, I'm interested in how, how you, if you think back, was that a problem for you initially? How did you conquer it? What, you know, what, what techniques have you picked up to do well on on the multiple obligations of being a faculty member? Uh, that's a big challenge, especially for those of us who have joint appointments. And I've had a joint appointment for most of my adult life. So that means essentially two sets of faculty meetings and uh, you know, two sets of service assignments. Uh, you know, it also means two sets of parties and receptions. So it <laughs> has an upside, but um, yeah, that's a struggle. I wouldn't diminish that at all. Um, I would say, what have I learned from that? Um, the first thing is that uh, you have to learn to say no from time to time. And you can say no pleasantly and politely, and most people will understand that most of the time. Uh, but the second lesson is, um, if you're going to shoulder some service assignments for one unit or even two units, seek out the assignments that seem really interesting and appealing. So for example, when I was asked to serve on a committee here at Georgetown that could lead to the creation of Georgetown's very first daycare center, I was thrilled to pieces. And I, I, would, have, I would have burned the midnight oil for that committee because it was something I was uh, passionate about and was also something that I could make a genuine contribution to. Nice. I see. So uh, if, if you could sit down with the 20-year-old Bill Gormley uh, and give advice to him, what, what would that be? He, he probably wouldn't take my advice. That, <laughs> <laughs> so that's the frustrating part of it. I know I would say take time to smell the roses. Uh, I rushed through graduate school. I wish I had lingered and loitered and and uh, hung around a little longer. I would say be prepared to, to pivot when you see an opportunity. Be prepared to reinvent yourself. Um, I'm intellectually a very restless person. And so after four or five years of working on Project X, I really want to turn to Project Y. And so um, for me, that's helped help me to stay young at heart 
and that's been uh, that's been a way of of just rejuvenating myself uh, from time to time and not not getting stale. Well, I can't think of a better way to to end this little interview than with that statement. So, Bill Gormley, I, I am in your debt. Thank you so much for this. It was an interesting discussion. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Take care.